Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. For mental health to progress, we must continually strive for greater visibility and have all voices heard, recognized, and encompassed within practice. This week's podcast guest, Emily Unity, is a mental health professional, software developer, and multidisciplinary creative. They are also a queer, culturally diverse, and neurodiverse young person. With a diverse portfolio in the mental health and human rights sector, focusing on marginalized and minority communities, Emily has worked across the sector, including with organisations such as Headspace, Origin, Beyond Blue, the Royal Children's Hospital and the National Mental Health Commission. Emily has lived experience of mental health challenges, homelessness, suicide and self-harm, being a young carer, neurodiversity, LGBTIQA+, having a disability and being from a refugee and migrant background. They were recently inducted into the Victorian Multicultural Honour Roll a finalist in the Disability Leadership Awards and appointed the Mental Health Advocate of the Year. Emily endeavours to use both the professional and lived experience to help advocate for a world for all people, regardless of background, identity or neurodiversity. They join me today to explore elements of personal experience, self-identity and their work highlighting the lived and living experiences of multicultural people with multicultural minds. Emily Unity, thanks very much for joining us and sharing your story with our listeners. Appreciate your time. No, thanks so much for having me. Emily, tell us about your background and how you came to be an advocate with Lived Experience Australia. Sure. I honestly didn't really know the term lived experience. I feel like that's maybe something that I only really discovered when I was working in the mental health industry. Where I grew up, it was over in Western Australia and I was the child of a refugee and a migrant mental health like didn't really occur to them as a thing. It was a very big cultural difference, understanding of well-being and what it was to be happy. And I think growing up for me, there were just lots of different journeys of sort of finding myself and finding what made me happy. And I think I, I first received a diagnosis of some sort of, of, of depression, anxiety when I was 12. And I think at the time that was really hard for my family to really understand. And I went through 
a whole bunch of different types of recovery types of journeys. So like going to traditional treatment systems in public and private mental health and community and clinical. And they definitely helped to an extent. But I think for me, there was a real catalyst and turning point where I met someone that had what I now know as lived experience. That's basically they have experience of the actual topic. Mm -hmm. And so they don't just like study it or they've they've read it in a book. They know what it's like because they've gone through it themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of shared lived in living experience was what really changed the narrative for me because I think I've been surrounded by a lot of propaganda of it's okay to not be okay, but no one was really demonstrating that and no one was really role modeling that vulnerability. So for me, meeting people that really understood the nuances of, you know, depression isn't a list of symptoms. It's these different heavy feelings and these colors and these slight experiences from moment to moment and be able to sit with someone in that and be able to talk them through how they cope with it as well. And are still coping with it was really healing for me. And so I sort of discovered that work and went into that when I was about 13, I'd say. So I've just been volunteering in the mental health space, sharing what's called my lived experience and my recovery journey, and now work more in project spaces and sort of systems, redesign and service delivery, and making sure that a lot of the services that are designed often do things to us and for us. And I think lived experience really changes that narrative to make sure that services are designed with us. And I think that makes the the support that they deliver really relevant and really accessible and actually effective for us. It's a great distinction that isn't it to us for us versus with it. and so tell me Emily when were you growing up in a small country town in a city in WA was it Honestly just like I, I was I was living right near the city okay. I think I think particularly from it's it's one of the most common migrant and refugee narratives that when you migrate to a new country you're trying to flip that narrative is quickly as you can and just trying to like assimilate and become quote unquote normal. So I grew up in a very like cishet white sort of society and no one around me looked like me. Like I'm a, you could call me diverse, I guess, in terms of gender and sexuality and cultural background. And I think it was really, really hard for me to find people that I could relate to and that people were being purposely vulnerable about. So yeah, like no one around me was really talking about mental health in the same ways I was experiencing it because there's very, there's a lot of intersectionality that comes into it from identity and background. Tell us about the, I mean, the challenges migrants have integrating into society and the challenges around that. Yeah, sure. So I'm I'm the child of a migrant, so I'm I'm speaking from my understanding of talking with my parents yes. um, and from my peers. But I think multicultural mental health is something that is unfortunately quite missed a lot of the time because when we think about mental health, we think about these clinical systems and these diagnostic models that are based on a very small subset of observing characteristics, you know, from a third party perspective as well. And when we talk about mental health, what we really mean is just like our emotional well-being, our, our well-being as, as people, and different cultures have different understandings of what that could be like. So when my parents came over, my mom is a refugee from the Vietnam War, my dad migrated from Malaysia, and they both came over before they were about 15. And so well-being looked very different to both of them. And I think their coping strategies of what well-being would look like for me and what they tried to make my life to be happy just looked very different to the society that I was actually raised in. So as an example, Australia is a very what's called an individualist society. So we're very focused on each of our own wants and needs, whereas Malaysia and Vietnam tend to be a lot more 
collectivist. So you don't talk about individual wants and needs and you very much do things for the purpose of saving face and building the reputation, the honor of the family. And anytime you sort of display what's called like excess emotions, quote unquote, it's normally the sign of, at least in my culture, it was a sign of like ancestral transgressions. And so I felt like it was something that was immutable about me. Like it was something that my ancestor had done and now I was feeling the repercussions. And so when I presented at a service and said, oh, I feel like I can't get better, they thought that that was just a standard sort of symptom of depression. Whereas I had this ingrained cultural belief that I literally could not get better because there's nothing that I can change about someone that had come generations before me. Yeah, so it's, it's just a very different understanding of well-being. I think the path to healing also has to be different because of that. It's very interesting, and I think that's a good point you raised. Tell me about the parent side of things or the carers. I mean, for people that are in the support networks of people going through depression, anxiety, tell us about the importance of the role that they play and how we're seeing that awareness, I guess, in education starting to hopefully come through for people to be actually aware of this sort of stuff as well for people around them. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that's that's some of the hardest things is that when you're talking about mental health recovery, it's not siloed. Like you don't just talk about one person, you talk about that whole network. It's very systemic as well. Mm. So when I was going through a lot of my mental health journey, I was definitely bringing my parents and my family along with me. And I think it was a learning journey for all of us. And something that, you know, I, I was very privileged to be born in Australia and grow up here with these understandings, whereas for them, it was a complete shift from everything that they'd known. And it was terrifying because it probably looked like I was walking into something that they tried to protect me from. And I think something that I came across much later was the concept of peer work, mm -hmm. which when I talk about my mental health journey and I speak about someone who shared the same sort of experiences as me and had the same lived experience, that was a peer worker. And so that's someone that walked alongside me. So instead of like a clinician having that power dynamic of them being like the helper and me being the helpee, it was a peer worker that was still experiencing their own journey and was walking alongside me in mine. And something that I really loved about that was that there's this other type of peer work that's family peer work or carer peer work, where that person has an experience of caring for someone or supporting someone with mental health challenges and recovery, and they walk alongside other supporters. And I think that that's something that when I first came across that, it was just so emotional because I felt like my parents were so alone as well. Like looking back, I felt incredibly isolated and really alone because I felt like no one understood what I was going through but they felt the exact same way too and they were just trying to care for me in the best way that they could and we we're all just doing the best that we could with the resources that we had but we all just felt like no one really understood each of our narratives and so I think that sort of carer perspective is unfortunately lost a lot of the time but it's really important that we understand that mental health really affects everyone and that lived experiences for me at least it's either personal experience of mental health challenges and recovery or experiences of supporting someone. And I think that it's it's very pervasive. And as far as I'm concerned, I, I don't know anyone that doesn't have lived experience because it, mental health really does affect all of us in some way. No, that's uh, you're right there with that. And if we look at the role of the carers, how do you feel like we've come since perhaps you went through it as a young teenager versus to where we, where you think we're at now for that support network? Do you think we're a fair way down the path with this and, and increasing that awareness and education for those people? I think we're definitely getting there. I think we're, I've seen a lot of steps in the right direction. I think something that I would like to see a lot more on is 
sort of diversifying what mental health looks like and especially what lived experience looks like. Because at the moment, when we think of lived experience, there's a lack of understanding of the different cultures and intersections of identity and socioeconomic background and everything like that. And the same exact thing goes for carers. So something that I've seen and been very lucky to be a part of is like this new movement of young carers, which are like young people that have lived and living experience of caring for someone that they know. So like a sibling or a parent is often the case or a friend. And young carers get really missed a lot of the time because when you think of like a stereotypical caring role, most people think of a parent and often a biological parent at that. And I think many people miss out on a lot of the other support systems that are in place, whether it be a friend or a teacher or a religious leader or, or a child that really is providing that primary care role. And I think that we need to diversify perhaps our language around what carers really mean. And so like I I tend to, when I describe it, I'm not sure whether you notice, I, I like list like a bunch of different terms to see if anyone does re- resonate with one of them because I go families, carers, supporters, and often some people prefer family and friends, some people prefer caregivers. I think it's maybe diversifying what that what that really means because I think at least the word carer definitely doesn't re- resonate with anyone in my family. And I think that it's about using the, the right words that get the right people so that people can access that support. You're right. I mean, carers does sound a little bit more at arm's length, doesn't it? Like you're actually just there to help someone, whereas it's more than that, isn't it, really? Mm, Uh, Absolutely. Okay, that's really interesting. So tell us a little bit about, if if we look back on the pressures that are facing kids, tell us about that and and the, the impact that it can have, whether it's expectations or pressures with life and I guess the sort of culture that we, we live in today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd say something that particularly being an advocate within children's and youth mental health is that not many people really believe like that there's a difference between the term empowering and the term supporting. I think a lot of decision makers often feel like, you know, young people's voices and children's voices are important, but when they go to actually listen to us, they use language such as empowering rather than supporting us. And I think for me that the key difference in that is empowering is the idea that someone doesn't have power and you're giving power to them and supporting is harnessing someone's innate power. And I think that that's something that's really important is that young people and children, we are not like weak or we are not incapable of speaking for ourselves. I think we don't have the right supports in place at the moment. We don't have the right resources or the right opportunities, but I think everyone is capable of expressing their own story in the best way. Like we are each the experts of our own experience and we just need the right tools in the right environment for us to do that. And I think a lot of our voices, particularly in the younger end of the spectrum, have been really lost because people assume that we can't speak for ourselves or it's too unsafe for us to speak for ourselves. And I think we really, we, we know what it's like to be young right now. We're living in the most like tumultuous age where things are constantly changing, whether that be digitally or economically or health climate. And I think that it's really important that we share our narratives rather than other people assuming what it's like for us. So whether it be like, you know, in the digital age that's constantly expanding, not sort of vilifying that and assuming that things are dangerous for us unless we actually say it for ourselves and listen to us and how we can actually change that to be healthier for ourselves. Because I think whether it be climate or whether it be health conditions or digital age or anything like that, Every time I talk to a young person or a peer, it just, it feels like 
we we have all these ideas, but no one is really listening to us in a way and engaging with us in a way that is meaningful to us so we can actually shape our futures. So I think that that really meaningful and genuine lived experience engagement with particularly children and young people is so important to us feeling like we can actually change the narrative and us actually feeling supported. That's really interesting that you bring that up. And I think that's it's a good point you make. I think also compared to when I was growing up, I guess, there seems to be more pressure. There's, there's like they're more accessible socially because of the internet and the different apps and social media apps. You've also got expectations from society, whether it's family, friends, about achieving certain things based on mm. our environment and our culture that we're bringing up here in Australia. But tell us a little bit about those pressures for young people and how that can be sort of taken, how they can take that on board and probably to the detriment of their mental health. So when I first started volunteering in mental health, I remember I had to like write out my mental health journey and really shape that into something that could be shared publicly in a safe way. And the first sentence was growing up, I was always surrounded by expectations. And it came from so many different angles, whether it be about being smart enough or being skinny enough or being fast enough or finding a quote unquote good husband or getting into the right career path. It felt like everyone had their own expectation of who I should be. And I spent so much of my childhood just really trying to shape myself into something that would be good for them. And along the way, I really lost sight of who I wanted to be and who I was. And coming back to that, coming home to myself has been an extremely difficult journey because I felt like those sorts of expectations, even though people weren't necessarily saying them directly to me all the time, I had onboarded them and always told myself that I was either too much or not enough. And I was always just... I always felt like I wasn't meeting someone's needs or expectations and completely neglecting my own in the case. So I think that this comes in a a variety of different ways. And I think the more voices that we're exposed to means the more support that we need to navigate that. So for me, like, I was lucky that Facebook only really became that popular when I was like leaving junior school and into high school. And I think our current generation of young people who are exposed to Facebook, like when they're born basically is it's it's so important that we don't vilify social media we don't vilify anything it's more about building the right supports in places to really let us know how we can use that in a safe way for us and it's very specific to us so I've I've been a very long journey to navigate different expectations take things and leave things and know what's good for me and because some some expectations are really good and some can really push you in the right direction or be motivation but I think I, I needed to learn what, what what the resources were really were that I could pull on um, to make sure that those expectations weren't harming me in a way that was shaping me into something that I didn't want to be and really prioritizing my own voice whilst also hearing those of my loved ones and the people around me. So that, I think that's particularly relevant when it comes to like digital spaces where we're just hyper exposed to so many more people than previous generations. And so it just feels like there's a lot more expectations. I think we just need supports on how to navigate that in a healthy way. You're right. The answer is not to simply turn it off and not be able to use it because then they get isolated. And and so it's just finding that framework, I guess, that they can use that. Mm. You mentioned the difference between the expectation of others and the expectation of, or not the expectation of of others, sorry, and then also what you wanted for yourself versus what others wanted for you. It's an important distinction because in some ways, you probably people probably feel that 
you can't have both and you either go mm. to make yourself happy or you're pleasing others but you feel like if you make yourself happy it's not what the others want and so that you know you feel like you're letting people down is that sort of is that sort of similar or does that resonate yeah 100% i think that standard angsty teenager phase that many of us go through, I definitely went through. And I think at some stage I thought that in order to prioritize myself, I had to reject everyone else's expectations. And I think it's that sort of dramatic overcorrection that I've learned that I can take on some expectations. I just need to really manage it in a way that works for me because I am susceptible to taking it on a little too much. I, I think balancing that and recognizing whose expectations really have your best interests at heart is is the key thing. It's not about rejecting things, like you said. It's about recognizing what is right for you and learning how to engage with that in a safe way for you. And being comfortable with that. And I guess that there's a degree of support networks may change over time because of choices that you're making based on what makes you happy versus others. But at the end of the day, it's your life and you have to do what you want to do, right? And And live it the way you want to live it. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we all are the experts of our own lives and we all need to be decision makers in that. It's just about how we can get there in a way that really feels right for us. And that is an incredibly difficult journey. (laughs) Well, it takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? Because you feel isolated, you feel alone. And and you mentioned that it wasn't until, you know, on your journey that you found that support net with the lived experience people to really help propel you forward out of your mental ill health experience is that is that the way you saw it as well is that because it resonates being able to talk to people that have been through the experience or going through it definitely yeah I think you know being surrounded by all these narratives of you are not alone and not actually seeing much evidence for that whilst also having to deal with like the intrusive thoughts (laughs) I think that it's really important that people really coming up and sharing their real stories which is why I do the work that I do now is because I want to help change that narrative for other people like other people helped me. And I think my support network, like you said, has changed dramatically over time. And I think it's still evolving with each new chapter. And and I think it's important for us to really recognize that we're doing the best that we can at each stage. Everyone is, but we really need to make the right choices that are good for us. And we need to prioritize our own wants and well-being. Where do you see the role of lived experience moving forward i mean it's grown a lot and certainly in the last decade we've come a long way but tell us where would you like to see it go so for me there's this phrase that's really common within the lived experience workforce that's nothing about us without us and i'm really a huge advocate for that so i think at the moment it's unfortunate that lived experience i feel like sometimes it's a buzzword in some spaces I and mean, some people feel like they need to tick it off to get say a research grant or do a consultation to release a paper but i think it's about really embedding us into everything that affects us as genuine decision makers and partnering it with us rather than just handing us the microphone every now and then and taking it back so i've been very very privileged to discover lived experience engagement in different spaces whether it be policy or project work or clinical services or community health awareness and i think that it always has a place in all of that. And I've seen the the real value that other people have shared with me with their lived experiences. And I've heard the feedback that I've gotten from my work. So I think it's important that we really embed the experiences of people who are actually experiencing the things rather than decision makers making 
these choices for us, whether it be about mental health or literally anything else, they need to be partnering with the people that are actually affected by the topics. So it's really lovely that the lived experience movement, we speak about it particularly from the mental health lens, but it does apply to many other lenses as well, whether it be like the more common term is like consumer participation and that's within like food and like products and stuff like that as well. And I think that that the actual experience of consuming something or living through something, experiencing it yourself, it's very different and you need to be involved in that decision making and traditional power holders need to create that space for us to really feel like we can make a change. We're seeing a a fair bit of lived experience now, which is fantastic, being involved on boards and in reforms and that sort of thing. You you still think we've got a way to go with that and designing, co-design and stuff around creating better outcomes for people living with mental health? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a kind of spectrum of engagement that you can sit on and down one end, there's sort of the informed side, which is like the traditional power holders just coming and telling information every now and then, all the way up to like partnering with people and involving us in each stage. But I think the final step that I'm really pushing for is what's called co-production, which is where the final decision making is actually given to people lived experience. So the people that are actually affected by the things that um, the, the supports are being designed for. So I think that that's the final step that I'm really aiming for. I've seen that done in some spaces. I think that it's incredibly rare and very valuable. Um, and I think we need to move towards that. There, there are huge steps that the industry is taking in, in different ways. And I think that we need to learn together and how to make a world that is genuinely partnering with people with lived a living experience, not just doing these once-off consultations or hearing our voices when it's necessary because it's it's always necessary. I agree with that. Emily, tell us about your role with Lived Experience Australia. Sure. Honestly, my role with Lived Experience Australia has very luckily fallen into place. It's very serendipitous. So my different engagements with them, whether it be speaking at a certain event or representing them at certain like once-off sorts of things like this. There's also like ongoing facilitation of different workshops. So like one of the workshops that we do is about advocacy and it's about like taking care of yourself within that advocacy, which I think is a skill that not many of us unfortunately given and we're sort of just thrown into that space as well as like hosting webinars and participating on things like that. And I think that the work that they do is really wonderful because it's also a lot of policy stuff and really feeding into bigger decision-making structures that can really affect widespread change. I think that that's something that I'm very passionate about is that I don't think that we're being inclusive with our lived experience engagement unless we're really doing it for everyone and we're really harnessing all sorts of diverse voices. And I think that that's something that Lived Experience Australia is really prioritizing. That's fantastic. So, I mean, they're up to a lot of things. They're doing a lot of research, advocacy, like you mentioned. They they seem to be growing. They're winning awards. I mean, what, mm. a, what a great organization to be a part of. Yes, I'm, I'm very, very lucky. Tell us, what's the future hold for you, Emily? I'm sure you've got some exciting things coming up or in the pipeline. Just tell us a little bit about what's coming up ahead for you. So, when I first, like, went to uni, which I thought was like the start of my career, so to speak. I went and got qualified as a software engineer and worked in that for a little bit. And then it's only been more recently that I really changed my sort of secret nighttime volunteering and mental health to be much more my day job. And I think I'm trying to find somewhere that's in that middle, somewhere between technology and mental health, because I think 
something that's really wonderful about lived experience is that it's, it's such a growing field and something that's really important about particularly children's and youth engagement is that we're almost always online. And I think the digital spaces can really create a, a very accessible and different future where we can really shape our own spaces into something that we feel safe in. And I think that's something that a lot of, unfortunately, mental health um, challenges come from is that people are stuck in circumstances that they can't really shape themselves. There's a lot of immutable characteristics that can't change until later. But if we create digital spaces that are really healing for us and and make it accessible to us, then that's something that I think can really be healing. So I'm slowly shifting a bit more into the middle bit between technology and mental health, keeping that lived experience narrative. So that's that's where I sort of see my future at the moment, but it is it is very flexible. I'm constantly learning new things because I think the lived experience space is so exciting. And at the moment, my main job is with the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne and sort of writing an engagement strategy on how to meaningfully engage with children's lived experience, which I think is an unfortunately missed area because you often default to, you know, the parents, but I think it's really important to harness all voices and respect that, you know, you might not be able to give a child a survey, but that doesn't mean that they can't express their experience in a different way. Well, that's, that'd be really interesting and, and pretty exciting and rewarding to be a part of that. Absolutely. That's awesome. So I know you're a, you're a bit of a gamer. You like video <laughs> games. What, what's your favorite game? Oh, gosh. I'm trying my hardest to stay away from Elden Ring, which has come out recently. But my favorite video game series at the moment is The Witcher, which I think had a new like Netflix series recently. And they've just announced a new game that's going to go into production. So I'm very, very excited for that. <laughs> wow. And so you've, have you used video games in, you know, in, in support of trying to improve your mental health over time? Has that helped you, video games? Absolutely. I think something that is incredibly empowering for me is the ability to really make choices that I felt like I couldn't when I was younger. So video games were a space where I, you know, could customize my avatar, make my character in the online space. And I could make choices, and interact with people that I wouldn't have the option to in real life. And I think meeting those diverse identities and exploring my identity through that way, that was really safe. And I could, you know, essentially press an undo button and also get that consistent show of I am progressing and I think that that's something that video games do really well is be able to give the player the autonomy to really define their own narrative and I like to say to people that when you meet me online you see the me that I want you to see which is opposed to if you meet me in person you make these assumptions about me whether it be my voice or my face or my race and I think that it's really important that we see the people that we can choose to be and leave those implicit biases at the door. I think video games really open up an avenue for that. And I've used it um, a lot in my work, um, particularly my peer work with young people. And it's it, it's been so lovely like speaking with them about what makes them so driven in such an interesting online space. And they, they show me what their different space looks like and what they've done to shape it to make it their own and how this is like their home and they feel like they actually have autonomy here. It's it's very, it's very new. I think it's a very emerging field. And I think it's something that I'm very passionate about because I think video games, particularly in social media as well, have been vilified as these, you know, these things that are harmful to us. But I think it's, again, not necessarily the thing themselves, but it's that we are not supported to navigate them in a way that really works for us. So finding the right video games for me and for my peers have, has been 
a very healing journey and I'm very lucky to have discovered it. That's a, it can be a great tool, can't it, to help support people and, like you said, take control and have their own identity and, and mm. project whatever it is that they want to be in that virtual world. And we're seeing more of that being used as tools to support people in, in doing that and trying to cope with some mental ill health challenges that they're going through as well. Mm. Emily, as we round off, I mean, tell me, how can people get in touch with you if they want to hear more? Do you have a website or something? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's normally just through my website, which is emilyunity.com. And you can just hit me up through that. There's a contact form. I also run, I, I've started my own podcast, which is oh, very, awesome. like, very lovely. It's mostly around multicultural mental health. So cool. you can get in touch with me through that too. Awesome. Is the podcast got a name? Yeah, it's called Multicultural Minds and the website is um, multiculturalminds.org. Awesome. Well, that's exciting. Congratulations for that. But really, Emily, I just want to say thank you for coming on on the uh, podcast with me and having a chat and telling us about your journey and getting your thoughts on lived experience and the role that that's playing in in Australian mental health system and what it needs to be moving forward. So I appreciate your time. No, thank you so much for having me. Honestly, these platforms are really integral i think and it's so important that you're raising this awareness because this is the type of stuff that i wish that i heard a really long time ago and i hope that it helps someone else too fantastic thanks emily thanks so much is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast are there more questions you want the answers to let us know what you want to hear Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.